Welcome to Utopian Horizons. Welcome to Utopian Horizons, a podcast about utopias real and imaginary. This is a new podcast, so to explain to you my plans for it, what I'd like to do is cover a different utopia, dystopia, utopian thinker or movement in each episode. So this could include utopias and dystopias from science fiction, blueprints for a future of automated work, real places, cities, people who've tried to change the world, whether through inventions or ideas, movements and all manner of other things. It's going to be a podcast about exploring a fascination with different visions of the future and alternative ways of living, about concrete developments and ideas that could change the way we live and the way our society is structured. It's about what utopian visions tell us about ourselves in the here and now, and about the power of utopia to spark imagination and motivate people to create change in their communities and even the world. I've got a few cool things lined up for future episodes in terms of guests and subjects. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Utopian Horizons if you want to keep an eye on what's coming. But if there's anything anyone listening would like to see me cover that's somehow related to Utopia, whether that be a novel, a film, a video game, a person or anything else, you can tweet me at Utopian Horizons, email me on utopianhorizonspod at gmail.com or get in touch on Facebook at facebook.com slash utopianhorizons. Please do because I'm eager to hear ideas and open to covering them. Anyway, on to this first episode which doesn't cover a specific utopia. That's because I want this first episode to serve as something of an introduction to the subject. So whether you know very little about it or already have a good grounding in it, my hope is that it will have something for you, courtesy of my guest who knows her stuff. That guest is Fatima Vieira. She is Associate Professor at the University of Porto and has spent many years writing and teaching on the subject of Utopia. She spent 10 years as a Chair of the Utopian Studies Society of Europe and is working on a number of projects related to utopianism, so she knows what she's talking about. Before we get into the conversation with Fatima, uh, I'm conscious that we quite quickly jump into talking about Thomas More's Utopia and perhaps don't explain too much about what that is. Um, so for anyone who's listening who doesn't know we're talking about a book first published in 1516 where a character recalls his experience of visiting a fictional island called Utopia and in this book he details how this perfect place has slaves by the way so it's not perfect by my standards and I hope not yours too but it's it's meant to be a detailing of a perfect place and how it's organized in terms of politics religion daily life and so on so it's kind of a blueprint for an ideal society so I hope that clarifies things when it comes to what we're talking about. Now, on to my conversation with Fatima. Fatima, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure. The starting point is obviously a, a question that sounds rather simple, but uh, I think it's actually quite complicated, which is, what is utopia? Yeah, so uh, utopia is a neologism, or at least it was a neologism when Thomas More created it back in 1516. And he created it to name the island that he describes in his book. And it is a, a neologism of Greek etymology, which literally means uh, a non-place. 
But something that we need to say is that uh, the concept of non-place is totally different from a place that does not exist. Uh, because uh, this neologism, it conveys a tension. On the one hand, the, the affirmation of a place, a place which is asserted by the imagination of the utopian writer or the utopian thinker, who presents it as a possibility, as an alternative. And so this is a positive movement. And then we have the, the negation, we have the, the denial of the physical existence of the place uh, which has been asserted. And in fact, I would say this is all what utopia is about, you know, a tension between what we are and what we can possibly be. And obviously we're talking about Thomas More, his utopia giving birth to the term, but has utopia as this idea of like what we could be, what places could we be, has that existed previously to... More's utopia. Uh, I would say that we need to draw a line between utopian thought and utopian literature, because if we are mm -hmm. thinking about utopian literature, then of course it starts with with Thomas More. But I would say that utopian thinking exists ever since the moment when the human being started to think about the problems of the society he lived in, and tried to to devise, try to imagine ways of solving uh, the problems and working towards a, a better future. But something needs to, say, to, to be said about utopian thinking, because it's not at all wishful thinking. It involves mm -hmm. critical thinking, it involves an analysis of the present situation, but it is uh, a critical thinking which is highly political. And I mean that uh, in the sense that it tries to identify the causes of the problems, and also because it requires from the utopian thinking, thinker um, a capacity for devising new ways of organizing society uh, in view to solve those problems. So it's not wishful thinking. It's a completely different thing. And obviously we see that in, in Thomas More's Utopia. It's, it's essentially almost a, a blueprint for another place. It points to how things could be different. It tries to address things, uh, problems that exist uh, within the, the time that he's writing. I just wanted to ask, are there any, uh, what do you think, are there any other kind of key examples of utopia throughout history? So More's Utopia is obviously a, a very famous one. Um, I mean, do, do you look back at things like Plato's Republic? Um, yeah, uh, we, we have, first of all, what I would call the, the prefigurations of utopia. That is, those texts that were written before Thomas More set the basis for the literary genre. And of course, Plato's Republic would be the most obvious example. Um, but also, you know, this one is taken from the, the Greek antiquity. Uh, perhaps we could give another example taken from the Middle Ages, St. Augustine's uh, The City of God. But I would say mm -hmm. that these prefigurations are very different from Moore's Utopia because they, they lack the strengths of Utopia, which is uh, to describe a, so a utopian society in motion, something that really exists. That That's what Thomas More is doing. It, he is describing a society in motion. And what happens is that Plato, uh, although he, he discussed the foundations of an alternative society, the alternative society is always presented as a speculation, and St. Augustine in The City of God, uh, he seems more interested in projecting his, his ideal society into the afterlife. Um, so Thomas More did something which is completely uh, different. And first of all, I would say that he started a subversive tradition. And this needs to be said because uh, that is one of the main features of Utopia. It, it, it enables the utopian authors 
to dismiss any dis responsibility regarding what they are describing. They may always say, as I'm sure that more certainly did, uh, I am just describing what someone else described to me. And so there, there is mm. this radical tradition uh, that needs to be acknowledged and that reaches its highest moment in the 17th century with with Winston Lay, for example, in the law uh, uh, of freedom, uh, the law of freedom, freedom, sorry, in a platform where he suggests that property should be abolished, that wages should be abolished. Uh, another example would be James Harrington, who in uh, Oceana suggests that ownership of property is limited. And it is the, this radical tradition that we find again uh, in the second half of the 19th century in the in the work of William Morris, uh, News from Nowhere, for example. And again, I would say in the 20th century, um, mainly in the 1960s and uh, 1970s, when utopian literature is used to convey ecological concerns, but uh, when it is also seen as a means for criticism and for opening up new perspectives for women and the place of women in society. And then we have, uh, of course, science fiction, uh, which goes back to uh, Francis Bacon's New Atlantis, which is called uh, nowadays considered a scientific utopia. So there are many highlights, I would say, in this uh, utopian uh, tradition. Well, um, that that radical tradition and that critical function is something I certainly want to talk more about uh, in a bit. But um, something that I think is quite important to understand when when talking about what utopia is is its relationship to dystopia. Yes. Um, some someone that's sort of clarified my thinking on on dystopia uh, was a guy called Tom Moylan, yeah. uh, writing about science fiction, and he pointed out that dystopia is not necessarily the opposite to utopia which is what you kind of people most people will instinctively assume he he was argument is that dystopia a fictional dystopia can have can point towards uh positive the way of changing society for the better in the same way that a utopia can it can have agents of change who are trying to change the dystopia if you take the example of somebody like William Gibson and you know his his um, cyberpunk novels, he's he's depicting a society where corporations are unhindered by political constraint. They can go across borders. They can control control people in society, and that obviously points to things in our society that that are bad trends in our society that are bad, sure. and it is a kind of utopian drive in putting those warnings there. I wonder if that view of dystopia is, is, is one you would share. Yeah, I totally agree with you and I totally sub subscribe to Tom Moylan's and Raffaella Bacolini's and other authors' view. And in fact, in back in 2013, I, I edited a, a book entitled Dystopian Matters. And uh, I invited uh, a number of authors to write a very short text explaining why dystopia is important. And they all describe dystopia as utopia's sibling. And, and in fact, uh, utopia and dystopia, they share the same goal. I would say that the only difference is that they resort to different strategies because utopia resorts to what I would call a positive strategy by offering us a picture of a brighter future, uh, of what we may reach if 
we work towards it and it also shows us the, the path to take. While dystopia, um, it resorts to a negative strategy. It, it offers a picture uh, of a darker future, one which we may only prevent in case we manage to, to change the present. So I'd say that dystopia, although it resorts to a negative strategy, it aims to reach a positive goal, a better society. And it also uh, aims to drive us to, to action. So the, the, the objective, the goal is exactly the same as uh, utopia. But you, you can also have anti-utopian utopias and anti-utopian dystopias. Uh, yeah, but in this case with the anti, the, the difference, uh, I would say that utopias and dystopias, they are together in the same group, but anti-utopianism is completely different. So anti-utopianism mm -hmm. is a, a discourse on on the, the fact that it is not no worth thinking about alternatives. You know, the anti-utopias, they show us that then you live in dreams, that, uh, you know, that, uto that utopias are, are, are of no use. So I'd say that anti-utopias are very different from uh, dystopias, uh, also in their goal. Also, anti-utopia is connected to that idea that utopia is inherently totalitarian, like it can only lead to... Yeah, they can also show, yeah, that, that, that's one of the things that, that, uh, that, that they can show. So the, the anti-utopian discourse uh, has been founded, I would say, on two main arguments. On the one hand, this idea that, uh, you know, utopia is just wishful thinking. And on the other hand, the, this idea that utopia uh, leads to totalitarian uh, societies. But uh, I would resort to uh, Marie-Louise, Louise Berneri's um, argument uh, that, that she put forward in, in the 1950s already, saying that, that, that the problem is not with, uh, with utopias and with utopian thinking, but with the people that resort to utopian thinking. Yeah, sure. Okay, I just want to return to um, Thomas More's Utopia for, mm -hmm. for a moment. Obviously, it's a very important text in the, in the history of Utopia. Reading your... Um, article you wrote about it you you called more uh, a founder of discursivity i just wondered if you could explain a bit about what, what you meant by that sure um so in my view utopia deserves to be celebrated not so much because it started a new literary genre but but because it starts a, a new way of thinking uh, of thinking about our present and about the possibilities for for our future and it was uh, Michel Foucault who first wrote about the founders of discursivity and he was referring to authors who set the, the possibilities and who set the rules for the formation of, of other texts and for Foucault the the most obvious examples of founders of discursivity were Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud mm -hmm. But uh, I would like to argue that we could well uh, add Thomas More to this list. As I, I truly believe that uh, Thomas More offered his contemporaries a, a totally new perspective, which can really be seen as a revolution of thought. Now, if we, we, if we think of Thomas More as a founder of discursivity, uh, we need, of course, to identify and to, to describe uh, the Foundation Act. And I would say that his Foundation Act was that Thomas More offers us a practice of thinking where the discourse on the other is centered on oneself. And what I mean by this is that in his book, 
Thomas More describes the island of Utopia, but the inhabitants of Utopia are in fact dislocated Europeans. Mm -hmm. the, the other that we are told about, the other is only important because it provides us with a space for reflection on how the Utopians were afflicted by the same problems that afflicted the Europeans were dealing with them. But when I say that Thomas More was a founder of discursivity, I'm also thinking of another aspect. And I'm thinking of the, the fact that it set the possibilities and the rules for the formation of other texts, you know, to resort to what uh, Michel Foucault said. And this, I would say, explains why the utopian tradition is so rich and why it has evolved. And it is true that sometimes the solutions uh, that are offered by utopian texts, they seem out of date. And that is when people talk about the death of utopia. Mm. But uh, utopia does not die. Uh, you know, the solutions for the problems it seeks to, 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 to solve, they change. Uh, I would say, for instance, in the 16th and the 17th centuries, uh, the utopian recipe would involve legisla le legislation, sorry, laws were needed because the human being was not to be trusted. But in the Enlightenment, for instance, the emphasis was put on education. And in, in the 19th century, the main idea was revolution. Uh, it was the, abolish the abolishment of property an idea that, in fact, had already been put forward in the 17th century. So I would say that utopian solutions are not eternal, but utopian thinking is, and it is open to renewal. When I'm, I'm talking about utopian thinking, I'm, I'm, I have mainly in mind uh, what I would call four modes of thinking. And mm. uh, the first mode of thinking would be perspective thinking. Uh, this idea that we need to define an horizon, towards which, which we want to walk. And it is important that this horizon is inflated of possibilities, even if uh, some of them do not seem completely realizable, uh, because we need to have a surplus of desire. We need to have something to make us want to proceed, to, to go on. Uh, otherwise, when we reach the horizon, we stop, and then we do not want, uh, of course, utopia to crystallize. We want it to be dynamic. Now, the second mode of thinking uh, uh, would be critical thinking. And critical thinking is required both for the analysis of the present and for the option of the path that we want to take. And utopian thinkers need the, the skills of critical thinkers uh, because their choices need to be validated by reason and the consequences of those choices need to be analyzed as well. Then the third mode would be holistic thinking, the, this awareness that societies work as systems and that economic, social, political, uh, ecological problems, they are all in interconnected and that if we are seeking solutions for our society, we need to think of society as a whole. Mm. And finally, the, the fourth mode of thinking would be creative thinking. Uh, the fact that our imagination is triggered by, by the question, what if, what if I did this? What, what other possibilities could I have? And then, of course, I'd say that this, this question opens up 
for us uh, a myriad of possibilities. And that is, uh, in fact, one of the main functions of literary utopias and also of science fiction. Uh, they tell us of different ways of living. And the, this, this is, uh, this is a, an important feature of utopian thinking uh, as well. I think what, what you're talking about there leads us on to a conversation about what it is that utopia does, um, how it functions, and why it's important. I was, I was just say, I think it, um, I think it also be it can be easy to get into the habit of thinking about utopia as simply being about the future. But I think it's important to realise that it does impact on the here and now. Yes, I would say that that was one of that is. Uh, exactly one of the main features of utopian thinking is that although it deals with our future and I have to say that this idea of utopias being about the future uh, it started in, in the late 18th century uh, because uh, before utopias uh, would describe other places that already existed you know in the same time so the the Uchronias or the concept of Uchronia for the time of happiness started in the late 18th century in, in, in France. But this is, this really is another feature of utopian thinking, uh, you know, that although they deal with our future, uh, in fact, they are trying to highlight what is wrong with our present and they, they urge us to act to, to change what is wrong about our present. Yeah, they give us, they give us solutions, strategies. Um, yes, they do. critiques that we can apply now to yeah. try and make things better something which I've, I've got quite an interest in in science fiction and uh, which obviously is intimately related to utopia and something I wanted to talk about was in how utopia functions is there's this idea of uh, estrangement in science fiction right which probably everybody has experienced like when you start to read a science fiction novel there are words ideas the way things are organized that you've struggled to understand at first they seem weird and strange and then you later realize that they relate to things that you experience and the way things are now and that kind of gap that moment where you, where they seem weird and alien and strange opens up a, a space of criticism because that those things are no longer natural to you I know that's something you've talked about uh, in Utopia and in your writing about Utopia, you've talked about giving the capacity for thinking differently, for trying to devise new ideas. You talked about how our brains being deformed by the society we live in and by our habits of thought yeah. so that we can't even think about other possible forms of organization. So it seems to me like that's a key function of Utopia, the way it allows us to see what what appears as natural as anything but give us that critical space yes i'd say that the the notion of estrangement is is very important um utopian and, and science fiction texts they they offer us new perspectives and uh, you're right when you, you perhaps i would i'd, I'd like to, to add a, another aspect to what you said about this notion of estrangement is that what you may think to be odd at first once someone explains it to you once you understand the rationality between uh, you know be, behind it then things may start you know to make sense that is, that would be another um, function of estrangement and that that is what Ursula Le Guin's stories sorry that's why Ursula Le Guin's stories are, are so important mm. 
as regards the, the concept of family, the, the concept of gender, what it is about being a woman, a man, if these categories make sense of uh, at all. So uh, we have that space for criticism. So when you see that you mentioned, uh, you know, when you see that there's a distance between what we have and what you could have, and then you have the, this idea that once you understand, uh, you know, how things work, uh, then perhaps you can also understand that you could adopt exactly the same solutions in, in your society. Yeah, as you're saying, so in that way, it can not only it can not only present what appears natural as unnatural. Yeah. it can also present what initially appears as unnatural as actually quite. Yes, as, yeah, and, you're right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, something I also want to talk to you about is whether they, we go through like utopian eras or golden ages. Reading your work, I came across a word which I've not heard before uh, a french word avenir is that correct pronunciation yeah <laughs> um could you explain yeah, and, uh, a bit about what that is because that seems to me like you were suggesting that that was that's kind of a prerequisite for utopian thinking yes i was, I, I i have to use that word in english it's a french word we in portuguese i would say in the romance languages we have the, this distinction between the idea of future and uh, avenir and so the concept uh, uh, of avenir is very important because when we're talking about future future is about what will come what is certain what will happen you know we have mm -hmm. past present future and the, this concept was uh, the prevailing one until the, the 17th century and that's why people used to try to predict the future that was certain to happen and the concept of avenir is totally different it has to do with the, the possibility of the future so it has to do with what with what may happen if we work towards it. So in English, as I said, we do not have this, this concept of avenir. Perhaps we could replace it by using future in, in the plural. So instead of thinking about the future, we could think about new possible futures. It would be the same. Mm. And this concept of avenir is important because it has to do with uh, our agency, with uh, our capacity to bring about, you know, uh, alternatives, to, to bring about new possibilities. So that's obviously a big change from before that, before that concept kind of arose, or that way of thinking arose. People tend to think in, it was kind of an era of prophecy, right? Like everything yeah. was set out, like human history was set out, you know, yeah. Nostradamus and, and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. So this obviously provides um, a different way of seeing the world and uh, a capacity for thinking about difference. Um, but yeah, go, go, do, you, do you think we go through like cycles of uh, utopian, utopian eras, like golden ages? I always think of the 60s as being an era where there was a lot yeah. of utopian fiction. You had intentional communities. Which for anyone who listening who doesn't know what an intentional community is, it's basically a community set up around a particular idea or, or way of living. So I mean, is that do we go through these ages where utopia kind of booms? Yes, I would say the sixties and seventies they were uh, no doubt very important moments for, for intentional communities. Um, as far as literature is concerned, I would say that we have Renaissance utopias and then throughout the Enlightenment, we do not have many uh, examples, but in the 19th century, for sure. Nowadays, uh, there is a dystopian trend as far as, far as literature is concerned, but we have many 
uh, intentional communities. In fact, they have so very small communities, and um, they, actually, I I quite enjoyed the you know the idea of thinking of them as utopian labs. Mm -hmm. You know, that's where people are making experiments with new possibilities, uh, and they lack, of course, the dimension because there there are problems that you may solve. Uh, if you are thinking in a small scale, uh, that will never be solved in a in a big scale. But they they are very important because they they have to do uh, with this idea that you are changing society uh, bit by bit, you know. And it has to do with the uh, with a new way also of thinking about uh, about utopia, because in the past we had this grand narrative, mm. and that is why also we're going back to this idea of the anti utopia or the anti uh, utopian discourse. Uh, this idea that utopias may bring about dictatorship, uh, that is a valid argument if you are thinking uh, about the grand narratives of the past, you know, because you had to impose the main idea of utopias. But nowadays, contemporary utopianism deals with uh, reform, with the concept of, you know, uh, taking step by step, of um, working, uh, you know, at a small scale. And then, uh, of course, you can only participate in the change if you agree with the with the the, the idea, with rationale behind that that uh, that that project. And so, I would say that utopian discourse is very much alive uh, within these intentional communities. There are many many communities nowadays. At least in Europe, they are raising in number uh, every day, uh, mostly because of ecological concerns. People are going back to the land. They are you know growing. Uh, vegetables that, because they cannot find jobs uh, you know in the the big cities mm. so they are growing up uh, also they are uh, increasing in number mm. you, you mentioned uh, the grand grand narrative kind of utopia there that links to many people have suggested that 1989 the fall of communism there was kind of a, a death of utopia yeah. and we have this idea of the end of history where uh, we've Basically, in capitalism, we found, if not the best, then the least worst system. And there will be, you can change things here and there, but basically the, we have certain parameters that sets how things are and things aren't really going to change, which um, I think we're seeing something of a, a crisis of, of that idea now. But um, I just wondered, do you think that the fall of communism, that period, uh, led to a kind of boom of anti-utopianism yeah uh, i would say that what we are talking when when we uh when people said that utopia was was dead they were referring to the political project to a political solution and that's where the the the, the difference between what i would call philosophical utopia and political utopia um makes sense uh so th there was a political solution uh which was not working any anymore. So, uh, as I said, what dies, uh, what is no, um, what is not seen as as feasible anymore, uh, anymore, is the solution, a particular solution. But utopian thinking uh, goes on, and then it, it gains, it acquires new life uh, when it is inflated by new political so solutions. Do you feel like to me, it feels like the the nineties and the two thousands were. To me, in, at that time, utopia as a word has primarily been associated as like an insult, right? Like yeah. you're 
it's used to describe someone who's unrealistically dreaming. It feels to me like the 90s and 2000s were were particularly anti-utopian. And I wonder if, say, in, in, in one of your articles, you, you um, quote Edgar Morin as saying that the crisis we live in today is a crisis of the imagination. And I wonder if you feel that anti-utopianism of the, the 90s and 2000s, um, that unwillingness to deviate from the the system we've had has contributed to the the crisis we have today in terms of the the rise of far-right politics which we're seeing across europe uh in america is that not in part a crisis of utopianism yeah i would say that it was a consequence for sure for the fact that people uh because they thought that uh, it was no worth thinking about different alternatives because it you know that it would be much better to try to 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 make the best of what they had uh so they they ceased to think um you know in the future in the and, and also the consequences and the alternatives. I would say that the 19th and the, the first years of the, the, the 21st century, they, because they did not think about alternatives, they did not think about the future, they did not prepare the future. And we are leaving the consequences of it. But what is interesting is that also because last year in 2016, we, we commemorated the, the 500th anniversary of the publication of Thomas More's Utopia, all over the world, there were people who, who used the word utopia, who, who uh, revived the word and the concept. Uh, so I'd say that nowadays, th- this is part of our vocabulary, and it is uh, now um, related to uh, the idea of uh, citizenship, of uh, participatory democracy, uh, of plenty of new ideas that uh, have to do with uh, the way that we are preparing our future. Mm. Personally, I think there's still this kind of crisis of imagination in, in mainstream left left politics yeah. that we still see. Utopia is inherently compelling. It allows us to imagine that things could be better for ourselves. And I think we're seeing on the left that there's a lot of people who are still thinking that we live in the world of the 90s and the 2000s, that things aren't going to change. Yeah, It seems to me like uh, the right, talking about people like Donald Trump, for example, the world he's trying to create isn't a utopian one for me personally, but he, it seems to be like he draws on utopian language. Yeah. Like he's saying that we can change things and it seems like the, yeah. the right has been far better exploiting utopian language today than the left. Yeah. But, but it's the, the utopia of the grand narratives. You know, so it's it's different from what I'd say uh, contemporary utopianism. But you're right when you mentioned, you know, the crisis of imagination. It was Edgar Morin who, who described uh, the, this, the 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 crisis that we're living in, and he said what he says is that our brain we we are not used anymore thinking of, uh, about you know possibilities, and so our, our brain because it has not been trained, it is difficult for us to you know to think of uh, about them. But uh, the the good news that has been conveyed by different studies, uh, you know, and neuroscientists that uh, are saying this every day, is that our brain is capable of changing. And we know that it has already started to change because of the internet. Nowadays, we are multitask. So I would say that I I do hope that uh, in the future, uh, we will be also trained to think differently. But one of the things that, but uh, going back to what you said, you're right, the um, right-wing discourse uh, explores 
utopian thinking, but it would be this idea of the project, not the project which is participated by the people and made by the people, but the project which is imposed on the people. But uh, there's something that uh, I'd like to, to mention, and uh, actually I have to thank Denise Baden for this. I've, I've been working with her on a project, we have just started it, and she highlights the, the, the need to incorporate the, the idea of positive psychology in the uh, utopian discourse. Uh, the fact is that normally we know that, uh, you know, uh, the dystopian discourse is as effective as the utopian discourse in the sense that if you show people images of uh, a future which is worse than our present then you are also you know making people or uh, forcing people to take action but in fact what Denise Baden says is that we should uh, teach utopia for instance in schools utopian thinking in schools and we should promote positive uh, psychology and the, the, we should promote this idea that we can make the change so that the change does not come from above from the government but it comes from the citizens and this you are totally right is what still needs to be explored by left-wing uh, discourse yeah because i think what, what you're saying is is very important that utopianism can be almost like anti-nihilistic like yeah. it's very easy to think that it's very easy to get depressed about the course we're on and, and think that it's not possible to change things but yeah. utopian thinking it allows us to believe that 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 we can change things and of course history is full of examples of people making massive changes yeah something i think we've touched on but not gone into uh, in depth that i'd like to talk about is something you've written about which is the difference between philosophical utopia and political utopia so could you explain a little bit about what the difference is between those two things yeah, so the political utopia is about uh, a project, a utopian project that is conceived, that is created to solve a particular problem. So uh, communism was a, a political uh, utopia. And then we have the philosophical utopia, uh, which is what has survived throughout, throughout history. And that is this idea that we may change that's that's because that's precisely what thomas more discovered and that's why we, we did not have uh utopian thinking before him you know that that was the the, the great discovery of the renaissance that uh, we are able to change our future and that we have the responsibility of creating our own future so the philosophical utopia always questions the present and it always asks the same question is it uh, is there a way of making things better so the philosophical utopia has to do with an attitude and the political utopia has to do with a recipe for change and it is precisely that the 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 political utopia that dies out you know when the the, the solutions that are offered um, are not you know feasible anymore and then it is the philosophical utopia which which survives i would say that in the 1990s and uh, in the first years of the 20th, 21st century it was the the, philosoph the philosophical utopia that really survived because the the, the political utopia had been uh, forgotten i would say uh, but nowadays the, the political utopia is reviving and i would say that the responsibility ha the, the responsibility of the, for this revival can be attributed to for instance donald trump it can be attributed to brexit because 
people know that they cannot ex uh, accept the, 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 the current policies. And the, because you cannot just say, I don't want this. Then you have to think about alternatives. Mm. And so I, I would say that we are living in promising times, you know, in the sense, and uh, that, that I'm sure that uh, new alternatives will, will be put forward and uh, hopefully put in practice as well. Now, you mentioned that philosophical utopia you think was kind of the, the more dominant thing from sort of the 90s onwards. I got the sense in reading what you, you've written that you think that there's some worth in rehabilitating political utopia so he talks about utopia losing the clear ideological commitment it used to have at the time of the grand utopia's narratives you cite darren webb um, arguing that the liberal rejection a priori of blueprint utopianism has reduced utopian pedagogy to a process of questioning an emptied utopia of valid guiding images so it seems to me that you're suggesting that we need these guiding images. So is, am I misreading you or do you think we need to re rehabilitate? Yeah, no, no that, that's, I think that you're reading uh, from an article that I wrote about the philosophical utopia because for many years I, I stood for this idea that we do not need political utopias, we need philosophical utopias. And but then I I read this article by Darren Webb. Well, where he said that there's a problem with uh, with our schools, what is being uh, taught to our students, because there's something which is very positive, which is the pedagogy of questions. So our students are being told that uh, they should ask questions. But the problem is that uh, they are taught to ask questions, but not to look for, for answers. Yeah. And uh, so perhaps you, you should combine the two things. So it's very good that they are not told what to think, that they have to question everything. So the, of course, it, critical thinking is needed. But then perhaps we could, sometimes it is also the role of the teacher, you know, to offer some idea of the horizons that they should, that should be reached. So I would say that we, that's why I, I, I believe, uh, and that was exactly when I was finishing my article, standing for the philosophical utopia, that I read uh, Darren Webb's article. And then I came to the conclusion that we do need to rescue, rescue the political utopia. And of course, I'm not uh, talking about, uh, you know, offering definite solutions, but perhaps guiding images uh, such as the participation of uh, you know of people in you know integration of the alternatives, so participatory democracy. Why not? So perhaps we could uh, show the advantages of these uh, new possibilities. Yeah, I certainly agree that I think offering concrete ideas has uh, certainly has its value. One other thing I wanted to touch on when we're talking about the points of utopia is something that you, you've already mentioned, which is it encourages a way of thinking systemically and i think that's very important today because we're living in a, a crisis of capitalism where the neoliberal model we've been living in is, is breaking down we're facing ecological catastrophe yeah we're likely to see the the kind of crisis of of immigration is is actually likely to become the norm as different places become inhabitable thanks to the ecological crisis so yeah. uh Something that you've talked about is that utopian, utopianism gives us a way to address these problems as uh, systems. Yeah. Right? yeah, it has to do with the, the holistic thinking that um, we, we that uh, the utopian thinking that utopian thinking entails. This idea that uh, when you think of a solution, 
then you have to see all, to see all the consequences uh, of that solution. You know that societies they do they work as as, as systems, and then you have to think uh, of all the aspects at the same time. You cannot just take a decision uh, as far as economy is concerned without uh, you know uh, thinking of all the other aspects of religion, for instance, of uh, you know society social consequences. So uh, the systemic nature of of utopian is very important and that that is also why uh, people are so interested in in reading for instance um, utopian literature uh, because what we are offered is a a full picture of the society with you know and all the, the aspects are covered and we can see that all the aspects are really inter interconnected and you're also right when you mentioned you know the the people that we we have to, to welcome to Europe we have to think of strategies to welcome them and, uh, uh, you know, thinking of all the aspects, not only the, the, the social and economic, but all the other aspects of our life. Um, okay, something that I, I want to move on to, you mentioned to me in a previous conversation, we're exchanging emails, that you're working on uh, the digital turn and what mm -hmm. that means for Utopia. So, for anyone who, who doesn't know what the digital turn is, could you briefly explain what that is, first of all, and then uh, how will you see that impacting on Utopia? Yeah, it has, it has to do with the fact that we are now discussing things on the internet, that information is on the internet. And uh, I, I would say that, um, first of all, there, there's this notion of co-emplacement uh, that started with the internet. There's this idea that the people that I, I meet now, that with whom I discuss my ideas, are not anymore my neighbors or the people that are attending my school or the people that I, I work with, but the people with whom I share a set of values and, and ideas. And the internet made it possible for us to be part of a, a wider movement. And then we have access uh, now to more information and it is easier to denounce what is wrong uh, as is happening, uh, happening, I would say, every day, for instance, uh, in the United States. But then the, the digital turn has also to do with the, the, this idea uh, that we can start projects together. You know, uh, we can, both of us, we, we can have a, a project, even if I'm living here in Portugal and you are, you know, so uh, far away from me. Mm -hmm. And um, and and also the, the fact that... Um, and now we have access, for instance, uh, to a lot of texts and to a lot of utopian texts that were not available anymore, that you could only read if you could, uh, you know, if you could go to the British Library, for instance. And so the, I would say that the, the digital turn uh, will give, you know, strength to the utopian, uh, to utopian thought and to perhaps a utopian movement. That could be quite important. You mentioned uh, making connections with people across uh you know not neighbors across borders and we're seeing a, a resurgence in nationalism i think again in europe in europe and the us so those kind of connections could be quite important to combat that yeah sure um one final thing I'd, I'd like to talk to you about is something which you're working on which is the utopia 500 project so could you yeah. tell me what that is please yeah, so we started this this project last year because we wanted to commemorate the the 500th anniversary of the publication of Thomas More's Utopia, and uh, but the project is still called now now that we are in 2017, it, it's still called Utopia 500, and it will hopefully go on, uh, you know, for many years. 
And so what we're doing at University of Porto, we are welcoming uh, trainees, uh, Erasmus trainees, that is, uh, you know, people, young people who have just graduated uh, from the university and who join us and who join us, uh, join our team uh, within the framework of uh, Erasmus mobility programs. And we have many projects we started. These are mainly uh, outreach projects. So we are resorting to the, the idea of positive psychology. Uh, we have a project which is called Panutopia. Uh, so that is, you know, utopia everywhere, total utopia. And we are fighting food waste. And we are going to schools. And it's incredible to see how young people have wonderful ideas. Uh, for instance, uh, in a neighboring town uh, here in Volongo, we signed a protocol uh, with mayor. Volongo is now the first utopian th- city okay. uh, with, uh, with the students of Porto, uh, with the, sorry, with students of Volongo trying to devise uh, strategies to change the town. It has been wonderful. For instance, they already have a fridge which belongs to the community where you can leave, you know, uh, the food that you're not having. And they have many, many other uh, ideas. We also have uh, another project which we are tr- promoting now in Volong, but we want to have this project everywhere. Uh, it's called Great Utopians, People with Ideas that have Changed the World. Mm-hmm. And what we are trying to do is to identify the people who really made the difference. So the, the message that we want to convey is that we can make the difference, you know, we can make a difference. And so we are now trying to create new maps of towns where instead of, instead of built heritage, you have cultural heritage, where you have the name of the, the, the persons who lived there and who did small things, but things that were relevant for the community, that really changed the, the, the community. And so our idea is to produce, uh, you know, maps of many towns in order to, to enhance the, the, the importance of, of uh, individual um, activities, individual projects. Uh, we also have the, the guest book project here uh, in Portugal. Uh, it is a project which is coordinated by uh, Richard Kearney. And it has to do with communities that uh, have problems. Uh, here in Porto, what we are doing, we are celebrating multiculturality. And we are trying to work this, this concept of hospitality which is so important uh, when we are thinking about uh, all the people that are now arriving in Europe and that we have to welcome and whose traditions, beliefs we have to respect. So uh, in this this uh, project, you can find information on it if you just write utopia500.net. Uh, and uh, uh, I'm saying this because we want to welcome, so far we had 60 students uh, or 60 trainees uh, coming from all over the world, and we we want really want to benefit from the contribution uh, and the enthusiasm of uh, any utopian thinkers that may be listening to us now. Cool. Well, they sound like great projects. So, um, good luck with those. And thank you. Thank you very much for joining me. No, most welcome. It was really my pleasure. Thank you. So that's the end of my conversation with Fatima. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. If so, I'd really appreciate it if you could subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or whatever it is you're using to listen to this. 
Obviously, this is a new podcast and it's something I'd like to grow and keep doing. So with that in mind, if you could take a, a brief moment to rate, review the podcast on, again, on iTunes or whatever it is that you're using, that type of stuff really does help with the podcast exposure and it will help it to grow and, and help me to keep doing this. So if you could take a moment to do that, that would be massively, massively appreciated. Also, if you've got any feedback or, as I said before, any ideas for things you'd like to be covered, please let me know. Again, you can email me at utopianhorizonspod at gmail.com, tweet me at utopianhorizons, and there's a Facebook page at facebook.com slash utopianhorizons. I'll be back soon with another episode. Until then, thanks for listening. (laughs) 